Well, as Danny mentioned, uh, VBS uh, starts tomorrow. And maybe you know me enough to know that I get excited at, well, just about anything. It doesn't take much to get me excited. But VBS is one of those things that really gets me excited. And I'll, t I'll tell you uh, why after we pray. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this week that we will be able to influence uh, your children, Lord. And I pray that you will work through us. And Lord, I thank you for this moment that we are here about to discuss your word, Lord. And I pray that you will... I put it on our hearts so that we could use it to teach others. Thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen. You know, I can still remember the first time that I went to VBS. As a matter of fact, I think it's the only time that I ever went to VBS as a kid, just one year. It was in a little old church in Gas City, just down the road from our house. I remember the ladies uh, teaching... Uh, Bible stories like David and Goliath and Noah and his ark. I remember the little things that we got to take home each day. You know, little plastic animals and uh, what would Jesus do bracelets that were probably from like oriental trading, the little uh, cheap plastic things. You know, they were kind of neat. I remember singing the good old songs like, Father Abraham and this little light of mine and the snacks. And those things were good, you know. But the thing that I remember most about it, about vacation Bible school, uh, didn't make sense until years later. You see, among all the fun and games and songs and snacks, there was a serious part about it. And that was the part about a man on a cross. Jesus was the ultimate hero out of all the stories that we learned about. But he didn't really seem to go along with the others like David and Noah. Some of the songs we sang talked about the blood of Jesus. A cross and the blood. Those things made it serious. What we talked about, uh, what we were learning in VBS, was not just fun and games. It was about real life. I didn't really understand it, because the biggest thing that I had to worry about in that stage of life was finding enough worms to fish with that afternoon. Little did I know, there was a spiritual battle going on. There was an enemy after me the whole time. I didn't even know it. I didn't understand that until I was 15 or 16 years old the seriousness of a man on the cross whose blood saved my soul. Now, unfortunately, a lot of kids have a lot more to worry about than I did when I was a kid. And this week, I have a chance to tell some kids at VBS about how serious that man on the cross is about loving them and about them being saved. C.S. Lewis says, Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. How real are the enemies in your life? 
Maybe you think, you don't have any enemies. Well, let me name some of them for you. How about pain? Physical pain, maybe. Maybe emotional pain. Maybe stress, depression, anxiety. Uh, How about pride, fear, or worry? Maybe pessimism, envy, or anger. These are just a few names of the enemies that we face every day. We know them, and we know that they are real. Our children face them as well. We can tie all these enemies back to the devil who is also real. And the one way to defeat this real enemy is a real savior. You may have learned about him back in VBS. But to know about him is not enough. We need to really know him. For the next few minutes, I want to remind you of a few stories that actually happened. They're recorded in our Bibles. They are vivid and full of action. They're the kind of stories that a kid will latch onto. Kids, they'll put themselves in the middle of these stories. Now, us adults, we kind of have a hard time doing that. But we need to. We need to put ourselves right in the middle of the action. How are our kids going to take their faith seriously if we aren't living a life modeled around our epic heritage that is recorded in the Bible? I mean, think about all of the crazy things that you read in Scripture. Uh, Some seem like fairy tales. Like when God tells Job about the behemoth and the Leviathan. Here's a real fire-breathing dragon in our scripture. In chapter 41, verse 1, Job is is worried about the way things are going to happen, and he's worried about himself, and God says, Who are you to worry? Listen, I have the power. God says, Can you catch the Leviathan with a hook or put a noose around its jaw? Can you tie it up with a rope through the nose or pierce its jaw? With a spike, will it beg you for mercy or implore for pity? Will it agree to work for you? Can it be your slave for life? Can you make it a pet like a bird and give it to your little girls to play with? If you lay a hand on it, you will certainly remember the battle that follows. You won't try that again. No, it's useless to try to capture it. The hunter who attempts it will be knocked down, and since no one dares to disturb it, Who then can stand up to me? Let me remind you, this is God talking. He's telling about his creation, this thing called a Leviathan. And he says, Job, you can't even touch the Leviathan. How are you going to stand up to me? He says, who has given me anything that I need to pay back? Everything under heaven is mine. I want to emphasize the Leviathan's limbs, God says, and its enormous strength, graceful form, Who can strip off its hide and who can penetrate its double layer of armor? Who can pry open its jaws for its teeth are terrible. 
And then my favorite part, God goes into uh, how we know that it is a fire-breathing dragon. Verse 18 says, when it sneezes, it flashes light. Its eyes are like the red of dawn. Lightning leaps from its mouth. Flames of fire flash out. Smoke streams from its nostrils like steam from a pot heated over burning rushes. Its breath would kindle coals for flames shoot from its mouth. Now, if you are a child and you read that, you have the mental image of what is really happening here. God has created this creature and he's lifting it up. Hey, Job, look at this. Now, that is is mind-blowing. Moses, think about Moses. When we read the story of Moses, just one of the examples where he is leading the people Uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt and they come to a place where they are being followed and here is the sea and God through Moses parts the sea, spreads the water out so that the people of Israel can walk right through it and they're walking on the bottom of the sea. Where do you see this in real life? There's walls of water. One fish forgets where he's going, comes out and lands them and they pick him up. We'll save this for Friday. That's not actually in Scripture, but imagine these huge walls of water. Maybe that's hard for you to imagine. As a kid, not so much. It actually happened. It's in our Scripture, and Moses leads them. And why did God part the waters? Why did he? Is because the, he wanted his people to be safe. And when those uh, Israelites got through the side, the water came back down, and overtook all of the Egyptians that were pursuing them, and they got to safety. Hey, remember Balaam and his donkey? This is an interesting story. So uh, Balaam had himself a good donkey that he had trusted, and he was riding it, and, and he went the way that God wasn't, wasn't really wanting him to go. And so God opened up the mouth of that donkey and made that donkey speak to Balaam and If you're a child, you're thinking, is that right? Because I think I've seen that on Mr. Ed once. That's crazy to think that an animal animal would talk. Us adults sometimes think, eh. But God enabled the donkey to do it. Hey, remember a, a man named Elijah? Speaking of God using animals to do his work. Elijah had this crazy battle about proving who God was and whose God was real, the prophets of Baal, they said, hey, we worship this, these uh, numerous gods. And, and, and Elijah says, let's have, a, let's have a, a competition. You build yourself an altar here, and I'll build an altar over here, and we'll see whose God is real. And they did that, and they all day, they, they prayed, and they moaned the prophets of Baal, and they tried to get um, their gods to burn up their altar. And Elijah says, just wait, just you watch. And he says, uh, praise to God. He said, before, before we do anything else, throw a bunch of water on my altars. They throw a bunch of water there, and he prays to God, and God brings down fire from heaven and burns it all up. And in the mind of a child, that's pretty cool. That is amazing. Now, after that, after that, Elijah is like uh, experiencing letdown. What do you do after you've just proved God's existence by praying for fire to come down from heaven and burn everything up? 
I mean, there's nothing left to do after you have proved God through something like that. So he experienced a little bit of letdown. Depression started to set in and doubt creeped into Elijah. Elijah is like, oh man, maybe I'm the only guy left. I've got nothing left to do. I've already proved that God is who God says he is. And he gets depressed and he starts to doubt and he doesn't take care of himself. He says, why am I even alive? And you know what God does? God makes his ravens, the crows, start bringing food to Elijah. You see that in everyday life. I mean, I haven't ever seen birds bring me food. It's normally my wife's job or my daughter's. Actually, most of the time I have to get it on my own. No, that's not true. God uses the ravens to take care of Elijah, to raise him up, to strengthen him so that he can continue to do God's work. David, just a, a young man. Man, it seems easy for him to gather the courage to go up against Goliath. There they are out in the field, and boy, Everybody is worried about Goliath. That Goliath will stomp any man who comes near him. And all the seasoned warriors, they don't want to approach Goliath. But David just uh, skips on up there and says, how dare he insult the people of the living God. And he walks right up there and takes care of this giant who is the, the warrior of all warriors, just whips him as easy as can be. And adults are like, man, how does that happen? And the kids are like, I'm going to be David. That's who I'm going to be. How about Gideon? You like Gideon? I, I do. Uh, Gideon had his 300 men, but it didn't start out that way. You see, Gideon started out with 32,000 soldiers. That seems like a lot. But compared to the Midianites, that wasn't very many because the Midianites had 135 thousand soldiers 135,000 Gideon started out with 32,000 and God said wait a second that's too many that wouldn't be fair and so God uh, God decides uh, you've got to uh, start narrowing them down Gideon and so he reduces Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 now with 300 people that are with Gideon 300 of the hardest core soldiers God and uh, God says that 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 sounds fair 300 against 135,000 now it's time to go get her done and they go up and they fight and then Gideon's 300 whip the 135,000 Midianites and adults were like hmm I don't know about that and the kids they love it they hear it and they want to be part of it who wants to be part of the 300 Oh, think about Joshua. Joshua is, is even crazier. So <clears throat> there was this town of Jericho, and <clears throat> uh, Joshua's folks, they were going to Jericho, but there was big walls that surrounded it. <clears throat> how are they going to take down those walls? <clears throat> so Joshua does what God tells him to do, and God says, here's what I want you to do, Joshua. Um, pick seven of the priests and give them bullhorns, and th that's who's going to lead the, the attack on, um, <clears throat> on Jericho. Now, <clears throat> usually, you think, boy, if I'm going to follow somebody into battle, 
it's going to be a commander who has led some serious military v uh, victories. It's going to be somebody who's had a good history at fighting, and, and God, through Joshua, says, no, seven priests with horns. That's who you're going to follow. Now, I don't know if, how many preachers you guys have ever seen. Uh, you're looking at one right now. Um, <clears throat> we don't usually look like the big warrior kind, the big tough guys that you would follow in the battle. But because this is God's story, he says seven priests with bullhorns, and you're going to follow them. And when they blow them bullhorns, you're going to shout, and you're going to yell, and those walls are going to crumble down. And the adults are like, what's that? How does that happen? When was the last time that happened in your life? But the kids are like, sign me up. I'll yell and shout if God wants me to. If that's what he says, I will do it. But the thing is, kids don't know about what God wants them to do if we don't teach them. And hey, they're not going to learn if it's boring. There's really nothing boring about this book. Packed full of excitement. They probably, kids probably won't get to the living serious part of it unless we teach them the stories that all point to Jesus. Of all the good stuff from Scripture that we need to teach our children, I think it all boils down to, to three things that we need to teach them. Number one, we need to teach our children to see. We need to teach them to see. John chapter 9, Jesus is, is in the process of healing a blind man. And uh, th this man had been blind for life. He had never seen anything, blind since he was born. And um, <clears throat> Jesus approaches him. And you know how Jesus did. It was a Sabbath day. So there was no work, uh, no work allowed on the Sabbath day. And Jesus uh, spits in the dirt and makes a paste out of the mud and puts it on the blind man's eyes, his closed eyes. And I don't know why he used mud and saliva. It doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense to me, other than it looks like Jesus is actually doing it so that he can be working on the Sabbath so that he can prove to the Pharisees that, hey, the uh, Sabbath was not made for man. Man was made for no, I got that wrong. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. This is what he wanted to get across him. So he did that so it would be work. And then he tells the fellow, now go wash those uh, that uh, paste off of your eyes. And the man did that. And guess what? He could see. Pretty amazed, I'm sure. How exciting would that be? Never seeing in your whole life. <clears throat> and then open your eyes for the first time see color and light and people and the things that make sound you can actually see them oh I'm sure he's happy but the Pharisees weren't the Pharisees didn't like good things happening evidently said who, who is this man that healed you the blind man says well he's not blind anymore the used to be blind man said uh, he must have been a prophet the Jewish leaders refused to believe this man, so they went to his parents. Hey, has this man always been blind his whole life, or has he just been pretending? And the parents are like, 
why don't you ask him? He's right here. And so the second time they called in the man who had been blind and they told him, hey, uh, what's going on here? Who healed you? And the man who said he healed you is a sinner. And the used-to-be-blind man says, I don't know whether he was a sinner or not, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. Look, man, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? And then the used-to-be-blind guy kind of throws it in their face. Do you want to be his disciples too? And then, of course, uh, the Pharisees do what the Pharisees seem to be good at. They cursed him and said, you are his disciple. So we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. But we don't even know where this man comes from. The used-to-be-blind man says, why, that's very strange. The man replied, uh, he healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? He's like, now, now I can physically see, but you can't see that this man is from God. Jesus is from God. How else would he be able to heal this man's eyes? You know, some people are just like, Man, I need one more miracle. God, give me one more sign, and I'll really believe you. Maybe you've been like that in your life. You pray. Uh, boy, if, if, if you would just get me through this one thing, God, I'll never doubt you again. If you would just help me through, then I will be hardcore wanting to do your will. If you'd save me from this sin, then I won't sin ever again. But you know what? Miracles never convince skeptical people. They just keep asking for more. John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus says, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Without seeing me. We need to teach our kids to see the truth of Scripture. We need to teach them how to apply it to their lives. Not to see Jesus with their eyes, but to see him with their hearts, with their faith. Teach them to see. And when they can see where they are going, then we've got to teach them to lead. We have to teach our kids to lead. Uh, John chapter 10, just a little bit later, recorded after the, the blind man, Jesus talks about being a shepherd. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But only the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. Jesus is not running, folks. He is not a hired hand. A hired hand is in it for the money. He's in it for the fame 
or the personal gain. Jesus, he doesn't care about any of of those things. He cares about you. He's in it for you, the shepherd. He is our leader. We need to learn how to be a leader like Jesus. Teach our kids how to lead like Jesus, not to be in this this thing that we call life, in this thing that we... we talk about at church, we talk about at VBS, it's called Christianity, following Jesus. You know, we are in this thing not for personal gain, not for monetary gain, not for uh, being lifted up, but we are in it for the end result, for saving others and for being saved from our sin. Now, Look at our other leaders that we discussed already. Moses. Moses had to be a leader. Oh, God could have parted those seas, put up the walls and the water himself, but he asked Moses to lead the Egyptians or the the Israelites out of Egypt. And he asked Gideon Gideon to battle the Midianites. And he asked him to do it only with 300 people. And He asked David to be a leader. Go up against Goliath and show all the other guys how how it is to trust in God. He asked Joshua, here's how you be a leader. God used all these leaders. Listen, we have to teach our kids not to run from their responsibilities. They have responsibilities to your families, to their families, and they have responsibilities to doing God's will. The hired hand runs. From his responsibilities if it doesn't help him out but not the true shepherd the true leader is there such thing as a natural born leader we hear that sometimes oh my kid's just a natural born leader well maybe so but where are they leading where are they leading people to because if they're leading in a direction that's away from Jesus or not towards heaven, uh, then that's no good. And they're going to lead people in the wrong way. Our children must follow first and follow always. Even us adults, we have to be following Jesus. We learn as the young ones to follow the ones whom we trust, our parents and our grandparents. And then we learn that uh, following is a lifelong process. To be a leader, you must follow Jesus. We need to teach our children to lead. And number three, we've got to teach them to win. We have to teach our kids to win battles. Remember the battles. We've already said some stress, depression, anxiety, pride, fear, worry, pessimism, envy, anger. The list goes on and on. All kinds of battles that our kids will deal with, the same ones that we are dealing with, and we have to teach them to win those battles. Now, let me tell you how. You want to win them, first of all, with courage like David. David walked up there not worrying about what would actually happen to him. He was just faithfully uh, doing what he felt God pushing him to do. We have to teach them to win battles with valor like Gideon. God told Gideon, hey, you do it, 
even though it seems like the odds are way against you because I'm asking you to do it. Our need, children need to win like him, and our children need to fight with trust like Joshua to do battle. When God says, here's how you do it, then you just believe it. And if, if, if it means priests with horns or uh, sh- shouting when you're marching around, then you just trust like Joshua. Teach our children to win in the way that God tells us to win. Like the Gentile woman who brought her little girl who was possessed by an evil spirit to Jesus. I don't know if you remember this story. It's found in Mark chapter 7. She was a Gentile. Her daughter was suffering from something that none of us can even imagine doesn't seem to get much worse than that. But she knew what she had to do. She had to get help for her daughter. And so she begged Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile, not a Jewish person, Jesus wanted to test her faith. Jesus saw this as an opportunity. He said, are you sure that you believe in me? Are you sure that, uh, that you can have faith? Where is your trust? Why should I heal your daughter? And her answer was, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat some of the scraps of the, off the children's plate. You know what Jesus said? Good answer. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. This lady, who was a Gentile, learned how to win this battle. We need to teach our kids just the same thing. Here is how you win. You take your child to Jesus. You take your friends to Jesus. Take anyone you can to Jesus, and that's how we win. Like the blind man that we just discussed, the blind man whom Jesus healed, and in John chapter 9, verse 35, right after that, the situation with the Pharisees, um, Jesus uh, came to the man who was blind. When Jesus heard what happened, he found the man and asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus says. Isn't that pretty cool? The man can now see. And Jesus says, you have seen him, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. So this man, the man who was blind, won the battle, not when he was made unblind by Jesus, but when he said, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe in you. 
and then he worshipped Jesus. That's when he won the battle. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, they continue to lose the battle. They can see with their eyes, but they can't see with their hearts. Folks, we need to teach our children to see and to lead and to win the battles. We need to teach them to win the final victory as well. We've talked about some battles that we face in life. Let's eventually, no, let's all leading up to, to teach them about the final victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those of us, who, for, for those who love him. Victory. We can't imagine the powerful goodness that God has planned for those who love him. All these great accounts that we've read about in our Bibles and, and that we teach about at VBS, all these great things point in one direction. They point straight down the narrow path to victory in Jesus. With that in mind, I have three more epic Bible stories that I want to tell you today. The first one is about a war in heaven between Michael and Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Then there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced, forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or the Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. The second battle is about the defeat of the beast in the battle of Armageddon, Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire. And on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dripped in dipped in blood. And his title was the word of God. Now put yourself in the imagery of the first battles and stories that we read from the Old Testament as we're reading these battles. Because there's a time frame. Battles of the old and battles that are, that are happening now and battles that will happen in the future. He wore a robe dipped in blood. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest pure white linen followed him on white horses and from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod he will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe and on his thigh was written this title, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. And then I saw the angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come and gather together for a great banquet that God has prepared. That imagery 
So the angel looks up into the sky and he sees all the bad guys, all the armies of the world, all the evil armies, and he sees the vultures in the sky and he's like, hey, vultures, come over here because there's about to be a whole bunch of bad guys dead and it's going to be a big feast for you. Come on over. And he says, uh, come and eat the flesh of kings and generals and the strong warriors of horses and of their riders and of all humanity, both free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured with him and the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all of those who accepted the mark of the beast, who worshipped his statue, both the beast and his false prophet, were thrown alive down into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. <laughs> the imagery of that, the vividness, the things that make our mind just wonder, what is this? It's in our scripture. It's a battle. And we have to see it. We have to be a leader. To get through it, we have to trust Jesus to win these same kind of battles that happen every day that we aren't seeing. The last battle is the best, the last victory. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, when a thousand years had come to an end, Satan will be led out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog, in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle. A mighty army, a number as numberless as the sand along the seashore. <clears throat> and I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on them, or on the attacking armies, and consumed them. Again, I'm thinking... Here are the people of God, and the enemies are approaching them. The enemy is going to attack the people of God. But all of a sudden, fire from heaven comes down and destroys them. And we think, this, is, this has got to be some sort of, some sort of uh, allegory. But you know what? We've heard about fire from heaven before. Fire from heaven coming down to burn up. The things that Elijah laid on that altar. It's all in those old stories. And it's in the new stories. And it's going to happen. If we put our faith in Jesus, it's going to happen for our salvation. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. <whistles> joining the beast and the false prophet there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever the old stories we teach in VBS they are true and they are relevant it makes sense why we need the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness maybe you remember learning about God's armor in Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> it's a common thing that's taught at VBS. 
when we see that our battles are real, when we see that they are real, it makes sense why we need a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness. We need to teach our children to see that. When we realize that life here on earth is serious, that we can't just let it happen to us, we need to take control of life, we see that there is a real need for leaders. The shoes of peace and the shield of faith then seem very necessary. Teach your children to lead. And the last piece of God's armor, the sword of the Spirit reminds us that we are in a battle and we are in this battle to win. And don't just tie a knot and hold on until Jesus comes back. He's coming back, that's for sure. But tying a knot, holding on, uh, doing nothing until that point is, is not what he wants us to do. That's not what the sword is for. It's for winning battles every day. After all, we have nothing to lose. We know how it all ends up. We know where the final victory lies. It is in Jesus Christ. The serious part of VBS is that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be saved. And that's what we need to tell our children about. That's what we need to tell each other about. Will you pray with me now? Father God, I thank you so much for the gospel message of Jesus, for all the stories that you put in.